Welcome back to the Laravel Podcast. This week, I'm talking with Mohamed Saeed, Laravel's first employee, but he's also a free diver who lives in what looks like a vacation paradise. Stay tuned to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Laravel Podcast. We're, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to be counting these interviews. Who knows which number? Number 50 trillion podcast episode, season three words. I don't even know. I've got Mohammed Saeed. So Mohammed has done quite a few interviews um, because it's really special. He's the first employee of Laravel and Laravel is the most popular PHP framework. Um, it's It's got a lot going on for it and it's kind of like a one-man show. There's this this idea of the, benevol- the BDFL, the benevolent, benevolent dictator for life, uh, being Taylor Otwell. Um, so we both have, first of all, the first non-Taylor person working for Laravel, uh, who's Muhammad. But we also have the first idea where you see an open source framework, you know, you're comparing to an Angular or an Ember or someone else like that, who just kind of has like the BDFL and then hired an employee. I mean, Taylor, you know, created Laravel LLC, which is a company named Laravel, and that company has an employee. And so it's a little bit of a different working arrangement. Um, and also a lot of people hadn't heard of Muhammad when he he got hired. And so he's actually already had an interview in the Laravel News podcast. He's already, already been interviewed by um, Stack Over flow. Um, But I'm hoping that we're going to be able to cover a little bit more um, and a little bit of different things, maybe. I don't want to cover exactly the same territory. But I just wanted to point out that's, I mean, if you've never heard of Muhammad before, um, you obviously have never put in an issue or a pull request um, to the Laravel core because he's really been kind of very active in all those spaces um, for quite a while, together, of course, with a team of volunteers. Um, But he also writes on Medium. Um, he also develops his own features. He's also got a couple other packages. Mohammed is a is a is a man around the Laravel community that's been doing a lot of stuff. So I, I'm really excited to get to talk to him. Um, so before I start asking you questions, um, Mohammed, why don't you say hi and just kind of give us the basic pitch of who you are and what you're about um, when you first meet someone? You know, how do you tell them like what what you're about and what you're interested in, what you do, and where you're from, and anything else? And and then you, say whatever you got to say, and then we'll go from there. Uh, okay. Uh, well, first, my name is Mohammed Said, and uh, I live in uh, Hergada, Egypt. Hergada is uh, a small city on the Red Sea. Uh, it, uh, uh, I work as a, a web developer at Laravel uh, with Taylor Otwell. Uh, I've been working uh, with Taylor for the past year or so, and uh, like that's that's pretty much how I I describe myself to. Uh, to like to to uh, listeners of a, a podcast about Laravel, but uh, one of the things that uh, I usually mention when I speak with anyone is that uh, I love to dive, to dive into the ocean. So that's if if I am a Laravel developer, I'm also a free diver, and that's that's the two uh, uh, parts of me. So <laughs> that's that's me. Very cool. Uh, I think that when I when I follow you, I think that the three things I get about you are I get that uh, you love to dive, and I mean it. Just I I don't know anything about that, so I definitely have some questions for you there. Um, I know that you're married, and you'll you'll often reference your wife. Um, and actually, in one of your interviews, you mentioned that uh, of the things you tend to do, it's program, um, dive, and shop with your wife. So I might go somewhere there, and then that you live you live in you Egypt. Oh yeah, you, so yeah, programming, diving, and and then, and then your wife and shopping with your wife. So you didn't originally work in, live in Hergada. I I, I I is Cairo is that where you were originally, and then once you started working with him, you moved to Hergada. Is that how it worked? Uh, yeah, I'm originally from Cairo, and uh, okay. I left there uh, 
all my life until like one year ago. But like Cairo is, uh, it's like a group of four large cities that grew up massively to become one large, huge city. So mm -hmm. you kind of like find a lot, a, a huge crowd of people in every corner. So it's, it became a little, uh, or be, it became very crowded and uh, very noisy. So uh, mm -hmm. me and a couple of friends, we tried to, to think like, other options if we would like to to live in a better place or so and we and each each one of us ha picked like one of the cities that he would like to move to and my mm. choice was Hergada because I love being around the sea I love uh, uh, meeting uh, uh, different kind of people and the, the interesting thing about Hergada is that it's full of foreigners like tourists and residents who are not from Egypt so that that's very interesting for me because like I get to meet people from different nationalities and I get to make uh, friends from uh, different point of views and so on. And that's why I picked Hergada and me and my wife, we traveled to Hergada for two weeks to test the waters and we really liked it so much and we decided just to move. Um, maybe that was uh, December 2016, around a year ago. Right. Okay. And so I'm, you know, I, I love learning about where people are from and what they're about. Um, so one of the things that I did was I opened up kayak for, um, for looking up flights. And I just said, you know what, if I were to leave out of Orlando, which is my closest kind of major international airport, and I were to go to Hurghada, um, what would it take? And, and what it told me was um, the affordable option is around a thousand US dollars. Um, and that is a multi-stage flight. Um, with uh, going through JFK and then I think Cairo. So obviously it says Hurghada International Airport, but it's obviously not big enough that I could fly directly into it. Um, but it's a big enough airport that I could basically go out of my my next major you know hub, which is JFK for me, and then over to Cairo and then over to Hurghada. It would take me about 19 hours to get there. Um, have you ever considered, and we'll go lots of different places, have you ever considered pulling a, you know, a Michael Dorinda and all those other folks and kind of flying the whole way over to U.S. for a Laracon? Is that something that might be in the cards for you one day? Yeah, I, I definitely do it. I tried to do that for like the past uh, uh, couple of Laracons, but uh, I couldn't really arrange it uh, for myself mm -hmm. to, to fly to the States, but I, I definitely do it if I get the chance. Uh, cool. All right. So Hergada. So I, I, you know, I love kind of getting context about things. So Hergada is a, a touristy kind of beach city. It's right on the Red Sea, um, and it's uh, so Cairo is um, it's a big kind of metropolitan hub. You said it's four cities that have kind of grown up together, um, and it's just it's really massive. Um, Hergada. Does it feel very big? Uh... Like Hergada, it's it's not very big and not very small. Like uh, you can uh, drive around Hergada uh, in less than thirty minutes from the beginning of wow. the city to the end of it because it's like uh, two roads on the sea. So if you are working on the uh, of, of you are driving on the street that's directly on the sea from the start to the end, you just can do it in thirty minutes. So it's not wow. it's not very big and not very small. Uh, but it has like a lot of uh, 
different kind of people from different nationalities. So mm-hmm. that makes it like feel even more richer than Cairo. Like in Cairo, you get to meet a lot of people everywhere. It's it's very crowded. Hergada is yeah. not as crowded, but with the diversity, it makes it a rich city, not just a small city that uh, you just go and relax. There are a lot Got of it. activities and a lot of people to meet here. And yeah, that's 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 why I like it in the first place. Yeah, it seems like the best of both worlds where it's both kind of small. I mean, there's only somewhere around 250,000 people, which I complain about how small Gainesville is where I live. And the Gainesville metro area is over 250,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also spread out, so they're not super compact. But it also, one of the problems with Gainesville is it's it's hard to get anywhere. And there's just like, there's not as much of like an international vibe, which you just mentioned. So you're getting a, a small, easily travelable place where the 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 population density isn't too high you're meeting people from all over and i mean anybody who's listening to this but just pause for a second and go google hergada h-u-r-g-h-a-d-a and just go to google images and it's just luxurious beautiful blue and teal ocean vista after after vista after it's just gorgeous and i mean you could also just follow mohammed on any social media platform and you'll know um pretty much all he's doing is just like being in a vacation commercial every single day like <laughs> every picture you get is just you diving through the most beautiful water i've ever seen it's kind of unbelievable so yeah the water here is very it's very amazing um so there's a lot of people who live you know a couple i mean so hurgada is five hours away from cairo so there's a lot of people who are five hours away from just absolutely beautiful vacation destinations um and there's a lot of different things that kind of hold us back from doing what you did just kind of pulling up your roots and uh moving to this beautiful place where you can do these things you want so i want to talk a little bit about some of the some of the things that might have kept you from moving over there um so for starters, um, is your family all still back in Cairo? And if so, has it been hard being so far away from them? Or is that was that a pretty easy decision to make? Uh, no, it wasn't easy because like it took us two years to make the move uh, mm-hmm. because like all the family and friends are living in Cairo. And uh, also I wasn't, uh, I had to be in Cairo for, for work purposes. I, I just started working remotely uh, like one year before the move. So we had uh, a lot of attachments in Cairo, either me and my wife, because she used to work as a, uh, a, a teaching assistant in, uh, in, in the university in Cairo. So uh, it took us like around two years for us to, to get ready for the move. And I, I keep telling my friends to, I keep encouraging them to get out of Cairo and try to ex- experience other places. But I know mm-hmm. how difficult it can be. So... I just, I just hope like that people just give it a chance, like and, and try to move there for like a limited amount of time, not just to make the final decision, just to try it for uh, two weeks or three weeks or so before they can uh, feel, uh, you can uh, know if they th- feel good about it, that they can sacrifice all the attachments that they have, they have in Cairo, and move to a new city, or it's just not doesn't doesn't worth it. So. Uh, yeah, I, I try to convince people to make the move, but it's not easy. I understand that. Yeah. Um, so when you decided to, to do that two-week trip, I think that's a really cool idea, that going somewhere for two weeks to try it out. Were you just living in a hotel, or was it something like an Airbnb, or how were you able to just kind of move to a place for a short term? Yeah, we used Airbnb to find a, a nice apartment. Uh, it wasn't, uh, like you mentioned that Hergada is a luxurious city. Uh, it's not. Like what you see on the internet, <laughs> what you see on the internet is the photos of the hotels and resorts. Right, right. Uh, but actually the city is 
it's, it's like a city in Egypt and uh, we can like it or not, but Egypt is a, is a third world country. Like it's not very clean and not very uh, well taken care of, but it's definitely a nice uh, a wild place on the sea. So that's, that's how I describe it. It's a wild place on the sea. So when we moved there for two weeks, we, we tried to pick an apartment at the heart of the city, not uh, in any of the luxurious uh, areas or uh, places uh, that, were ha that has lots of, lots of hotels and lots of resorts, just a place in the middle of the, of the city itself, just to, to know the people, just to know how, how life is uh, in the city, the actual city, not the, the touristic uh, uh, place. So, right. yeah, that, that's, that's, I think that that was wise, wise enough for us to, uh, to understand the actual city, not just the luxurious places if we stayed in a hotel or so. Yep. Yeah. And, and the reason I, I specifically said, I, I, I didn't say her God is beautiful. I said, when you look up Google images, it's beautiful. And, and that's exactly kind of what you pointed out, which is that there's a, there's often a difference. The interesting thing is the more, um, the more, I guess, first world it is, the more likely it is that if there's natural beauty, then, uh, the, the, the cost and, and also the kind of quality of the, uh, the places that you can live around the beautiful thing uh, is more necessarily higher. Like there's not a lot of really, really, really beautiful beaches in the U.S., maybe none, where you can live close enough to the beach that you can just kind of walk or maybe drive for five minutes um, and have a place that you could describe the way you just described Hugada, right? Because if there's a beach, then that means there's, you know, a beautiful beach, at least. That, that means there's incredibly expensive ocean high rises um, all along the way that are really, 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 really costly. And anybody who's got access to a beach like that is probably paying quite a premium. I mean, I visited Miami very recently. And they're extremely expensive. Um, so I'm looking at an Airbnb in Hurghada and just literally the first result that came up, studio with free private beach. It's not a beautiful place, you know, can fit two people. It's not, you know, probably a couple hundred square foot, um, but it's it's $17 per night. And if you compare what that looks like to somewhere in Florida, it's just kind of mind boggling to me. And so I, I, I told you before we started this call that you have the opportunity to just say, you know what, I don't want to discuss that. I'm not going to ask you how much money you're making, but I do want to ask kind of a broader question of does working for a U.S. based company um, did that make it easier to move somewhere like Hargata? Did that give you a little bit more financial flexibility because you're you're getting paid a little bit closer to American rates, um, but living at, at Egyptian costs? Or is the is the cost of living not so different um, that that made a big impact? Yeah, it definitely made made a huge difference. Like uh, before, like before I, I I started working at Laravel, uh, the decision to move to a, a different city. Uh, not having any friends or any family around to help in case I needed any kind of help. That was like terrifying. But yeah. like the financial security that uh, it gives you like a feeling of uh, security. Like that's that's how, how you can describe it. That you can yeah. af afford living in a place uh, like Ergada. It's, it's not very... Uh, uh, even for an Egyptian having a, a, a normal Egyptian salary, Hergada is not very uh, expensive. Like what, okay. you, what you see in Airbnb, it's like the, the price or the cost for foreigners. Got it. Yeah. In Hergada, there are like every, everything has two prices. One price for foreigners and the other for <laughs> Egyptians. <laughs> That's I know, hilarious. I know that's not fair. 
but that's that's how yeah, it that's is life yeah that's how it how the because like if if i have an apartment in hergada and i want to rent it to someone uh if i rent it if i don't rent it to egyptians and i only put prices for uh, that where foreigners can afford egyptians won't ever be able to to rent my apartment and uh, it will be like empty for the most of the year so people like put prices uh, for everything even uh, uh, gifts even in uh, in the shops they they put prices in dollars or euros or mm-hmm. the equivalent in, in Egyptian pounds to your dollars and euros. But if you're an Egyptian and you go and try to buy something, they give you a different price because they know that you can't afford the, that high price that they give to foreigners and tourists. So, yeah. yes, Hergada is, is a touristic city, but that, that, that kind of separation between foreigners and Egyptians, it, it made it a bit easier for me to make the decision. Uh, but yeah, yeah. La- like the, the financial security that I'm having from my current job, it made a, bit di- a big difference. Yeah, I can't deny. Yeah. So you talked a little bit um, in one of your other interviews. And just for anybody who knows, there's two interviews that I'm referencing. He was uh, interviewed in the Laravel News podcast and he was interviewed on the Stack Overview blog, Overflow blog. I'll link both of those in the show notes. So go take a look at those because I'm not going to try and cover the same kind of stuff that they were covering there. But one of the things that you mentioned that is that you had done swimming uh, and then your trainer pushed you a little bit too hard and you almost kind of had stopped swimming um, for a while. What was it that got you back into swimming after you had that kind of negative experience with it? Uh, well, I, uh, we used to go to the sea every summer when I was like a kid. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, like seven years or maybe uh, back, uh, my father, he got sick and we, he had problems with his uh, business and he had to close it down, shut it down. Uh, it, mm, they, uh, they were like tough years, so we didn't get the chance to go to the sea for a few years. But mm-hmm. but then when I first like got engaged to my wife, uh, and uh, we had a trip with uh, with her family, and I joined them. Uh, it was like in Hergada here in a, a hotel uh, on the beach, and we just got into the sea. And uh, I wanted to impress my fiance like that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> So I tried to swim and like to look cool while swimming so, so that she, she gets impressed. Uh, right. and, and that's when I discovered that I need to get back to swimming and I, I really like swimming and I really like the sea and I need to get back to, to learning how to swim better. And that's, that's pretty much how it started. Hmm. That's cool. And so when did you make the switch from swimming to realizing that diving was something you're interested in? What, what, what was that like? Again, my wife was the reason because she likes to collect seashells. And I used to swim huh. and try to dive and bring her seashells from like uh, two meters or three meters deep. And then I realized that I love diving because when you dive, you get closer to the fish and get closer to the marine life. And I look cool as well. So... <laughs> yeah you sure do yeah that's that's, awesome that's again because of my wife that's very cool um i don't know what made me think about this but i started wondering about um the languages i I don't know what put that in my brain but uh i assume that the kind of the the common language that everyone speaks and everything oh it's because you mentioned putting things in english and u.s dollars in the in the the windows is is arabic um but did you what was learning english like for you is that something that you learned in schools or is an intentional decision that you made or do you speak english a lot better than the folks you know or is this kind of your level of fluency pretty common well uh in egypt everybody uh, learns english in schools like there are two types of schools uh 
the, they call it the new system or the experimental system and the old system. The old system is Arabic only. They only learn English uh, when they are uh, like not very young. But the school I, I, I went to, we used to have an English class from since I, I, I was like five or six years old. So that, mm -hmm. that really like helped a lot. But then yeah. later, uh, I, I, um, I kept watching like a lot of TV movies, uh, a lot of movies and a lot of TV series in English and listen to music uh, and songs or so. And that made me like collect a good amount of vocabulary. And mm. uh, my, my, actually, my, uh, I, I know I have a heavy accent and I'm not as fluent as I am while I'm writing English. I, I write better than speaking because like I don't get to practice English a lot. Um, sure. Yeah. But, uh, but I think like among like my folks, we are all on the same level because we all like get to learn English in schools. That's cool. And, I, and just for what it's worth, you don't have a heavy accent. You have an accent. Um, but you don't have a heavy accent, but further it's, there's, I think there's a difference between an accent and fluency. Um, you are extremely fluent. I mean, there's, there's nothing that would suggest that you're having any trouble conveying your words. Um, and I, so that, that often is the difference between either a school system that introduces it really early or someone who's kind of taken extraordinary efforts, um, to kind of learn the language. So that's really, uh, really cool to hear that there's, there's schools where they're really kind of starting it so early and making it so intensive. I, I've spoken to a lot of people about, um, the impact that many or most programming things being in English um, has. And I actually asked for a while to people, what would, would it be worth me building into the CMS that powers my website, the ability to have like a translated version into multiple translations for each of my blog posts. And, and of course the people who follow me are willing to speak English because otherwise why follow me on Twitter? So I, I got a little bit of a biased sample because they all said, don't worry, you just need to learn English to program. Um, have you, seen any or do you have any thoughts about um, non-English programming education or anything like that or are you in the camp that just says you know what if you're going to do code you got to learn English that's just a part of the deal yeah I think that if you if you are going to do code you'll have to learn English and that's why I I, I keep telling to everyone around uh, because like the problem is like the content of uh, the, the tutorials and learning content online is is all in English and if you are, mm -hmm. if you chose not to to learn English just because you don't like it or you don't think it's very important, you are missing a lot. Uh, I'm not like I'm not saying that people should learn the language because like uh, it's the language of the world and so on. Like uh, people have different opinions about that uh, around the world. But if you are a programmer. And if you don't want to learn English, you are missing a lot. And the number of programmers or the number of, of people who have blogs and post videos online who are willing to translate their content is not that big. So you right. definitely need to learn English in order for you to get, all, to get access or to have access to all this content online. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of access to the content, I know that one of the things that impacts people's ability to kind of learn programming, especially... Uh, in our generation where there weren't a lot of resources for programming when we were a little bit younger um, is when those resources kind of and the internet are made available in their country. You know, I think it's a little bit more ubiquitous now than it was 10, 20 years ago. So one of the things that you'd mentioned was 
you had said something along the lines of basically when the internet became widely available in Egypt was when you were, I think you were 12 or 13 or something, and you instantly latched onto Flash. Could you tell me, um, you talked a little bit about your your journey from Flash to HTML to PHP and WordPress, and so I don't want to double cover that. But what I'm, I think, a little more interested in is what was it like culturally to go from, you know, what was like prior to that, um, and I don't know what your level of access to the internet was prior to after that, not even just as a programmer, but just kind of daily life. What was it like? Um, what was that shift like? And how universal and how abrupt was the shift uh, where you felt like you did not and then later did have access to the internet? Yeah, well, before that, like, uh, you just have, to, you just know people, just limited amount of people around you, and you only get to know uh other people or other thoughts or other experiences from TV. And the thing about TV is that it's all uh, managed. Like, I mean, it's not natural. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you open a channel and you see what the channel wants you to see. So right. it was like a bit limited and you don't get to, to choose what what idea you ha- you need to follow you just have to open you just open the tv and you see uh, programs that uh, you must watch or you, that's the only option you can you can have right. you have to watch these programs in this sequence and so on but after i got e- exposed to the internet and i tested it the first time uh, actually the first few times i had to to open the internet my father was there uh, with me and i was sitting beside him and he uh, opened uh, yahoo and he taught me how to search how to write a search term and how to find information about uh, like back then i i was interested in maybe uh, animals like i know i want to know more about giraffes i want to know more about elephants and so on and he 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 taught me how to do search and how to hmm. find uh, the information i need and I started like getting into this world on my own and try to find uh, things that I'm interested in and uh, try to to learn more about it. And back then there was no YouTube and not much entertainment as as far as I can remember. It wasn't like a tool for entertainment as, as it is now. Like it wasn't very, very much like full of the videos and the photos like before. It was just maybe... Uh, all websites were like text-based and you just get to know information about a specific topic or so. And that's, that's how, how I started. But then I, I knew about chatting and I started using Yahoo Chat. There was like a room for web designers. And mm. I, I think that this room or this, this period of my life where I started to chat with people, it, it made a huge impact on who I am right now. Because like when, uh, when you get to meet people from outside your world or universe, like people from different countries, and they are focused on speaking about a single topic, which is web design. It's not like a general chat where, where everybody's talking about everything. It's just right. a, a focused uh, room full of people from different nationalities. And I was... Uh, maybe 13 or 14 years old back then and getting to know people or to to chat with people who are much much older than me and much more experienced and i felt like i'm not i'm not very uh, very amateur i i can discuss topics and i can get into conversations and i can have my own opinions 
And that, that gave me like a kind of confidence that I think it's uh, many people, especially here in Egypt lack, is that they always feel like they are not uh, valuable enough or not good enough to, to contribute or not good enough to, to be able to discuss a certain topic because uh, maybe maybe because they, it's it's the first time to I don't know I can't actually uh, explain why why people think like it but it gave me like interacting with people and tr speaking with them at this young age it gave me the confidence I need. That's really cool to hear. So if let's say uh, whether through you sending this to all your friends or maybe just the the natural reach of this podcast, let's say we got you know, a hundred young Egyptian women and men um, who are hearing you saying this and they say, I identify with everything that Muhammad just said. I feel like I don't have anything to contribute or I don't know how to contribute or whatever. Um, that's that's not how we want them to feel. That's not how you want them to feel. That's not how I want them to feel. I know it's not how Taylor or other members of the community want them to feel. We want them to feel like they, just like anybody in any other country, whether they're the U.S. or anywhere else, um, are welcome and, and have something to contribute. So, is there something you could say to them or some advice you could give to them that would help them? And this is not just for folks in Egypt, it's for anybody else in, in a similar country, but let's, for your sake, target, um, you know, people in Egypt, young people in Egypt um, who feel the same way that you just described, where they just don't know how to contribute or that they don't feel like they're good enough or whatever. Could you either give them a piece of advice or, or say something to them um, to help them kind of move past that? Well, I think that if, if, if you are like uh, on an online forum where people discuss web development or the topic or the area you are interested in, uh, and you just decided or you saw a post where you, you have an answer to or you have a reply or you have a, a, a point of view, and you just write on your keyboard whatever you have in mind, the problem is the, the click on the post button. That's, that's the problem. That's what's stopping everyone. Many people, like they, I, I know for sure that they see something in Laravel or any of the other repositories, and they try to to uh, to contribute or to ask a question or uh, require a change or something, and they they go all the way until they even open the pull request, but they just don't publish it. They just keep it or stop at this level. So. Hmm. My advice, or my what what I want to say is that just just keep it out there. Nobody nobody will judge you. Even if you have a question and you think it's stupid, like it's you just have to go into the forums and see how many stupid questions out there. I myself, <laughs> I I post a lot of stupid questions everywhere, and I feel like I, I, the first few times when I got hired uh, at Laravel, uh, I thought like I can't be an employee at Laravel. Uh, and uh, and just go to the forums and ask questions about Laravel. That will make right. me look like uh, I was like a misfit or a, it was a mistake to hire me. But then I decided mm -hmm. that I just go ahead and continue whatever I was doing and I'll just keep posting questions. And some of these questions are really stupid. Like some of them are, I can't really find the answer if I look myself very deep, but... It's just just how people are are felt to be. We are felt to live together and share what we think and just just interact with each other. So I just just post it and don't don't feel embarrassed or anything. That's really great advice, I, and I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, 
and I think it's it's an interesting in, inverse because I think a lot of people say, well, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to ask a question, but it's funny because the more your reputation grows, actually the more you feel like you don't have the freedom to ask those questions, just like you mentioned. And once you, you felt a lot more free asking questions before you had first employee of Laravel next to your name. And then all of a sudden, once you do, you now have, oh, well, I got to know these things. You know, I, I remember when I uh, signed a contract with O'Reilly to write Laravel up and running that, you know, the first I, one, the first or one of the first Laravel books with a like a major tech publisher I instantly had this feeling that like well now I gotta do everything on my own because I can't I can't be seen asking these questions and and it's totally true like I think that the best not only the best learning but even some of the best teaching to other people requires us to start from a place of um, assuming that like where we are is okay and revealing that that's where we are is not going to hurt us. Um, because often, like you're not even just learn, you're you're not capable of teaching something to other people until you revern or you reveal the fact that that's something that you just learned. And so sometimes you're scared to, to teach something to someone because you say, well, what if they realize? What if they say, oh, duh, everybody knows that? Well, then you don't you don't share that thing. So it doesn't just limit you from learning it; it even limits you from from helping other people. And you mentioned that with the pull requests and stuff. So um, I totally affirm um, what Muhammad just said. Is um, we really welcome people to just kind of be where they are and and that's okay. And I think the biggest thing, like some folks, you know, if you if you end up going into the Lara Chat Slack or Laravel IRC or the GitHub issues or anything else like that, you'll notice that like people with the simplest of questions who are um, kind and respectful um, are uh, just helped like crazy. And people with really complicated questions or who are trying to show off how much they know, um, who are disrespectful or unkind, um, aren't helped so much. It's very much like a, if you treat people the way you want to be treated, as long as you're kind and as long as you're respectful, um, I don't think there's any, you know, such a thing as a, as a bad question in that context. So, um, let's, let's do a quick break before we change topics. Um, your Twitter handle, I have always read it as the M Saeed, like the M Saeed. Is that actually what it is? What What is your Twitter handle and your GitHub handle actually representing? Uh, well, it's uh, my name is Mohammed Saeed. And uh, when I was young, I used to have all my usernames everywhere as M S A I D, uh, as M Saeed. But mm-hmm. then uh, I don't remember what happened, but uh, for like a year or so, I stopped being interested in in the internet and stuff and i i remember like uh, closing my accounts or just ignoring them until they got deactivated from the, from on their own uh, and then when i came back again i tried to register accounts from the start and the username msaid wasn't available so the second ah, option the worst yeah so the second option was like the msaid but i pronounce it as themsaid yeah, that's what I was wondering. That was my next question was, now that I know the source of it, how do you pronounce it? So that's how you, so you pronounce it like it was them. Yeah, them say it. It's, it's easier this way. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. All right. Um, so uh, t- again, I don't want to dig too far down this direction, but one of the things that I had mentioned to you before was that um, when there was, a, there was a time, probably three to six months prior to when you got hired by Laravel, where you came out of nowhere. You know, nobody had really heard your name or not, at least not folks in the U.S. Um, and all of a sudden you were 
making pull request after pull request after pull request. You were communicating extremely well. You were writing good code. They were extremely useful pull requests. And we just kind of like said, well, who, who is this guy and where is he coming from? And so I remember that when Laravel or when Taylor started hiring for the first Laravel employee, one of the things I said was, this Muhammad guy is someone you want to take a look at. And it wasn't my recommendation that got you the job or anything like that. But I, I definitely was, I put a vote in your favor because I was just so impressed with how useful your pull requests were and how good your code was and how, how well you were writing them. The way I've kind of thought about it was that you were at a job where you were using Laravel and you were, I think it was something about collections or pagination or something where you just had a very specific set of needs and you just ran into situations and you kind of have the mind to say, well, it doesn't do what I want, so I'm going to write them. Do I have the right story in my head? Is that where all that came from? You basically jumped into a new code base as Laravel, you found missing things and you pull requested them? Yeah, it was basically in the validator. And uh, I was working on a project where I need, uh, where I had to do a lot of array validation, and I just discovered this uh, tiny bug in an edge edge case, and I I thought to, to myself that I can fix I can fix it like I know what what went wrong and I know how the code works in Tenini, so I can fix it. So I I tried to just make the changes on the, my vendor's fo- uh, folder, just not, not doing any pull request or something. And I got it to work. I tested it on my code and it, it was working. So the next step, I saw that it might be useful that these changes or these fixes that uh, I did uh, to be published on Laravel so that everyone else can, uh, can use them. And uh, I just opened GitHub and read about how to open a pull request and that's that's how I got my first pull request open and it was rejected because I could it wasn't it was fixing something but it was breaking something uh, another thing but uh, right uh, after some time like I opened another pull request maybe the next day and that that one got merged so that's that's yeah that's how it started so those those pagination pull requests that you put in that I watched happen, those weren't just your first pull request to Laravel. They were your first open source GitHub pull request ever? Yeah, I never contributed to open source before. Laravel is my first project. All right, so th- there's there's an example of someone who had never contributed to open source before, never done a GitHub pull request before, uh, from that to working as the first employee of Laravel within under a year, if I remember correctly, and if not under a year, very close to it. Um, so there, there, there's a validation for what Mohammed was saying earlier about like just go do it because like that, that not saying you know that could be every person listening, but that could that could be it could, could that that could t- potentially you know you young listener who's never contributed to open source who feels like you don't have the ability to do that you know that's a story that could be a part of your story whether with Laravel or somebody else um but you need to make that first pull request um before that happens yeah i, I would just go and say like if you have something if you have uh, uh, an opinion if you have an idea just don't be scared to share it uh, if you just if you keep it to yourself nobody uh nobody uh, is is benefited but if you just share it it might be useful for someone else. So just just let it out there. Yeah, I like that. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about your work and uh, your work with Laravel and all that kind of stuff. So uh, a couple uh, easy questions first that a few folks from Titan wanted me to ask you. The first one was, what is your editor of choice? Uh, PHP Store. All right. So did you do a transition like a lot of folks do where you go sublime text to PHP storm or was that just kind of how you got started when you started writing PHP? Uh, well, I started writing PHP on front page 
It was Microsoft front page. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Microsoft front page. Yeah. <laughs> That's a throwback. Yeah. And then I moved to Dreamweaver and uh-huh. then yep. to Sublime and from Sublime to uh, NetBeans and from okay. Net- NetBeans to Sublime again and then <laughs> to PHP Storm. Uh, at currently, I use PHP Storm on regular basis, and but I have Sublime opened. I use it uh, for like for taking screenshots because yeah. the theme there looks cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, what is your favorite thing about PHP Storm that makes it um, more more useful to you than Sublime? Well, I I tried a lot of IDEs before, and I think PHP Storm is the fa- fastest. If you are coming from a background where you are using Sublime for a lot of time, you will think that PHP Storm is slow, but it's not. I think it's very fast, and it makes uh, writing code easier with the auto completion and uh, with the the many helpers that the the, pro, the software has. So yeah, I, I like it because it's fast. Like it is fast compared to other IDEs. Don't compare it to Sublime, but compare it to other IDEs, and you will find it very fast. Right. So once you've decided you're going to use an IDE, then it becomes the the best option. Yeah. What is the most important or impactful thing you've learned from working together with Taylor? Well, there is something that I I really, I I didn't learn it yet, but I wish at some point I'll start to to understand how, how he works. But like being someone like Taylor Otwell, like he's very successful in what he does. And he, he did a lot of very interesting projects, helping millions of people. And the, the two projects or the three projects that's, uh, that are getting him income are very successful and he's doing really great. But at the same time, he didn't lose motivation. Like, it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's very amazing for me. Like, I feel like at some point if I get uh, a kind of success that will, uh, that will, that I am I'm recognized by a lot of people, and that uh, my projects are being used by a lot of people, and I'm doing very well financially. By this time, I think that I'll start losing motivation and building other stuff. Like I'll start just to relax and have like something like an early retirement. But Taylor, he's he's constantly motivated to do other things. Like he wants mm-hmm. to build other packages he wants to enhance uh, uh, the existing packages and he he just keeps searching for ideas for like new packages and how to enhance the current ones non-stop so that's that's something i really wish to learn and the thing that i really uh, admire about taylor and that currently i think i started to learn it is how how important is details like Everyone writes code, but Taylor not just he 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 doesn't only write code. He just he writes beautiful code, like something that when you look at it, it looks nice. It looks beautiful. It looks readable. So these are the details, and he's very very focused on details as much as he's focused on the the core of the thing he's building or the thing he's uh, working on. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um... <clears throat> one of the things that we mentioned working with Taylor, working for um, for Laravel, has allowed you to do was it made the move to Hergada a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other things that um, that working with Laravel has allowed you to do 
um, either now or maybe that you, you you look forward to in the future that you think you might not have been able to do if you had stayed working for the company you were before? Well, basically, like right now, I think as as I shared, I am uh, more secure financially uh, in terms of money, but. Mm-hmm. One of the other perks that I get while, when I work for or working for Laravel is that I am, I know a lot of people right now in different countries. So my, yeah. I have that plan with my wife that at some point when we get a chance, we would like to love, uh, we'd love to uh, visit a lot of countries around the world. And uh, now I have, uh, I made a lot of friends around the world. Uh-huh. So yeah. uh, it would be really amazing to meet all these people in person and get to know their life and and just not to go to the country as a tourist but knowing them someone in the country it gives yeah. you the chance to live or to know the the actual life of the country not the the side that tourists see so that's that's yeah. one thing that that i found very useful that's very cool um so if let's say and god forbid let's say for some reason in five years you didn't work for Laravel. Um, for whatever reason, good or bad, uh, what would be your dream um, to do if you were kind of spun off? You know, you were financially stable. Let's say you had some savings. Um, would you? Are you the sort where you want you would want to start a consultancy? Would you want to start a product? Uh, would you just say, you know what? I hope that I'm. I would be financially stable enough that I could just retire. Like outside of the job you have right now, which is really good, and I, I don't want to suggest you leaving or anything. Let's say there was some circumstance that led you to not be working there anymore. What would be the thing that you would pursue, or do you even have anything in mind? Well, uh, during the past few months, I've been speaking with my wife regarding something that like that. When I before like working at Laravel, I used to consider myself as a mid-level developer. I'm not a professional developer. I never worked mm-hmm. for a big company or a successful company. All my past employers were like small startups or like uh, companies that are. I have two or three developers or so. So I always thought that my next level is to uh, try to apply to a. Uh, with like the big, biggest, bigger companies, and try to to enhance myself and become a, like a professional developer or like a senior level developer, and then maybe a team leader, and just just the regular ladder of a, a, a web developer or a programmer. But then right. suddenly I found myself working for Laravel, and I always thought that that's that's something that I I will reach when I am like maybe over my 40s or something to work for like a big name as big as Laravel itself. So it, it kind of made me like a little bit confused for some time that what's, what's next for me? What's, what's the next right. step? I am, I'm 28 years old and I don't, or I don't really see myself uh, stopping working with Laravel because I love my job very much and I yeah. love being around with all these people, uh, uh, speaking with them and interacting with them, trying to help and trying to find other ways to uh, to add to the community, so on and so forth. So I I, ca- I don't see myself leaving this job any anytime soon, but like the next step, which I hope will become will be in like uh, not not before like at least ten years or so. I right. think I think that I'm going to. Uh, try a different profession, not not even programming. Like, 
the thing is, I love programming, and I've been doing it uh, since I uh, I was very young. But I I moving to a city where like a lot of foreigners live. I met a lot of people who just decide for like two years, I'm not going to work. I'm going to live on my savings. Uh, I've met like a couple of these people who just decide for a year or two just to relax or to enjoy or to experience something different. And that idea at first was like very strange to me. Like if you are successful at your job and you are moving forward in your career, why would you stop and do something right. different in the middle of your like uh, very fruitful years? Uh, but I realized that people, when they do this, when they pause, when they get a break, when they try something different, when they get back, they uh, they are more rich and they think of uh, they think of things in a different way. So, yeah. my plan is if if at some point I have I have to to stop working for Laravel, I think that I'll try to to become a professional freediver. Tell me more about that. Is that is that instruction? Is it competition? <laughs> what does it look like to be a professional? Well, uh, I think uh, like. Being in competitions or so, it's it's on the map. But I think that uh, I still have a long way to go before I can go to competitions because uh, it's a very difficult sport and it requires a lot of training. And yeah. uh, for a for a free to 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 be able to to reach to the competition level, he have to be full time training every day for like a long long time. Not just wow. uh, like I I do it like I go free dive once a week. That's not enough for me to reach a level where I can compete. But uh, definitely, uh, I'd love to, at some point, I'd love to get certified and teach people free diving because I like to teach people stuff. I, I, I like to, to see someone who is, not, who is not familiar with something and I help him. And in a few months, I see him that, uh, doing great in his uh, uh, in in the area that I try to help him with I, I like that feeling I feel like that's yeah. that's something that everybody likes uh, I think it's not not something something special about me everyone likes to see the impact of what he does on other people so yeah I think I think that my next experiment would be something related to free diving yeah yeah that's yeah. that's pretty much what it is that's cool. And that makes that makes a ton of sense. I mean, a lot of us, I mean, even, you know, Taylor and Jeffrey and me and Adam, a lot of us have said, like, what what do I want to be doing when I'm 40 or when I'm 50? Do I want to be sitting down writing code? And I don't know the answer. For some folks, the answer is yes. Some folks, it's no. Some folks, we don't know. But Jeffrey and I have often joked about being goat farmers um, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, some someday down the road. So and I think a lot of people I know who are programmers really focus on having like uh, they have a, a higher focus than a lot of other people on having a physical, um, uh, physically creative um, hobby. You know, a lot of them do carpentry or woodworking or whatever else because what we do is so much in the mind. It has so little actually kind of practical, concrete application in the physical world that um, sometimes we just feel like I just want to go do something with my hands and then like see the result. Um, and so, you know, yours isn't exactly that, but it definitely is like it, it's a, it's a real world physical, tangible thing that you already love doing that lines up with your desires of, of teaching and stuff like that. So I, I mean, I empathize with that so much and I, uh, I, I don't live close enough to the water for that to be a thing. And I don't know that I'm as interested in free diving as you are, but the idea of being able to spend every day, uh, in the sea sounds pretty, 
pretty great to me. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I got a couple more questions, but we're nearing the end of the interview. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask was, um, we've talked a little bit about, um, some of the different aspects of what it looked like, um, for people's confidence level of being a programmer in Egypt. We talked a little bit about how, um, coming up, um, into programming might have been a little bit different coming up into open source about how some of your international exposure through chat rooms have kind of changed the way, you know, you see yourself and see the world a little bit. Um, are there any things that we haven't covered where you can say, you know, here's some factors that make it unique to be a programmer in Egypt? Um, that are different from what you perceive from other folks in the Laravel community that you'd want to share with us? Uh, I'm sorry, can you rephrase the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh. Is there anything that we haven't already talked about that is a good, or that is an interesting way that being a programmer in Egypt is different from being a programmer elsewhere, as you kind of see from the people you know? Uh, well, I... Uh... I can pretty much say that before, like uh, 2011, the programming scene in Egypt it wasn't very, uh, very fruitful. Like a lot of people, they they favored like other professions than programming. Uh, but after like 2011, the Egyptian revolution, a lot of changed in the country, and one of the things that that made it uh, that made programming uh, pretty popular is uh, uh, that a lot of startups started in Egypt. And because like there was like cheap labor, like programmers in Egypt, the salaries were not as high as programmers in Europe. A lot of companies mm-hmm. in Europe, they started uh, companies in Egypt uh, uh, to, uh, to, to, like, to control the, uh, the, the amount of expense they, they have to right. pay. So uh, programmers became like our programming became like one of the professions that people like look forward to and try to 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 be everyone tr- is trying to become a programmer but then after a few years uh, the curve changed and, and the mood changed and because of the uh, uh, political instability and economic instability a lot of countries a lot of companies shut down and they just left and a lot of developers who are really good they left the country and are now working in Europe or the states so that leaves the scene here in Egypt uh, as if it was like the past um, maybe seven or six years weren't there. Like people huh. are starting from the beginning right now. So uh, I think that for, for everyone who's, who's like an Egyptian programmer who's like or looking forward to, to try to learn more and become a better programmer, I think that the lessons learned from people who started early in 2010-2011, they all has blog blogs online and they have blog posts and they talk about everything. That uh, you can just go there and uh, read about it, and you will find a lot of information on these blog posts that will help you uh, uh, go through the the journey even faster. I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. Yeah, and that's yeah. a fantastic answer. Um, so since that change has happened where it feels like a lot of those companies and even a lot of the more talented programmers have left, are you in a place where you have any other programmers or town? Are there even any meetups that you can go to or are you kind of getting all your community online? Well, that might sound depressing, but all my friends uh, during the past seven years, everyone I ever worked with who is a developer, he already left the country. So I'm the only one wow. from my group of friends who are still in Egypt. So, uh, 
yeah, it's it's pretty much like uh, very very raw right now. Like the scene right now is like how it was before, like that startup movement appeared in Egypt. Right. That does sound a little depressing. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, the good thing is you're, you're living in that beautiful place with your wife and getting to dive all the time. You have this great online community, but, um, I don't want to project this onto you, but is, is, do you have a, like a priority of like seeing Egypt grow back in that direction? Or is it sort of like a, well, if it does, it does. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And it's not too much of a bother. Well, I, I have mixed thoughts about that, like, uh, I wake up and I think that I, I want to, to help. I want to, to speak with developers in Egypt and try to... to uh, actually, they, nobody or a lot of developers, most of the developers, the Laravel developers in Egypt, they, they don't know me. They don't know I work for Laravel. They, they, don't, they are not on Twitter. And so I'm not, not that popular here. But uh, I wake up and I think that I want to help. I want to, to speak with people. I want to, to try to make a meetup a meet and uh, teach people what I, what I know and try to, to, to start a community. But the next day I wake up and I think that maybe it's something good, but maybe it's not, it's not someone like me who can do that. It requires a lot of energy. Yes, a lot yeah. of energy. Like I, I, I see Prosper and Neo, what they are doing in Nigeria, it's incredible. Like these guys are heroes. They are real heroes. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of energy for you to, yeah. to speak with people and gather them and try to start a community. So I'm not sure yeah. if, I, if I can do it, but I'm, I, I definitely help anyone who is willing to do it. Yeah. I can help them in any way. That's cool. And I, I, I really want to affirm what you just said, which is you can believe that the thing should happen and still decide that you're not the person to do it. That's like, I feel like that sometimes we feel the pressure that, well, it's not happening and I, I value it. So maybe I should have to do it. And I think that's a recipe for overcommitment and burnout. Um, so I, I applaud your wisdom and being able to recognize that even though you want that to happen, you are not necessarily the um, the one who's kind of supposed to be um, to actually running it. So, all right, Mohammed, I have one last question for you. Um, as somebody who watches um, all the issues, all the pull requests, all the documentation, everything else that comes into Laravel, um, is there something, uh, maybe a technical something, but often, or maybe just how to interact with people that you wish people would know? Is there one main thing that you say, as I watch the issues and pull requests that come into Laravel, I wish everybody knew this one thing? Uh, I wish everybody reads the full documentation before they even start to code. Uh, huh. Uh, a lot of people, like, they open issues and uh, they try to ask questions while everything is already answered in the documentation. But the thing is, like, uh, uh, people don't believe that documentation, because they are used to documentation of other projects where things right. are not very clear, so it's easier to just ask the question on the forums or on the repository. But for Laravel, the documentation is very, very clear. Like, if you read the documentation, you will find a lot a lot of missing or a lot of different uh, a lot of gems a lot of uh, uh, great stuff that you you can use in your project so just I, I advise everyone to read the documentation from page one to the last page and they will find themselves like knowing a lot of stuff that even if you are following laracasts even if you are reading if you already read uh, Matt's uh, Matt Stafford's book 
the documentation is necessary. It's it's important yeah. because it's it gets up, updated like nearly every week uh, with new features and with even warnings about uh, edge cases and no fixes, things that we are unable to fix. So it's important that people should follow the documentation, should read it every once in a while to make sure that they are on the same page with the rest of the community. I like that. That's a very good one. Um, and I, I second that too. The docs, not only were the docs always good, but Taylor has done several rounds of extensive review to make them better, clearer, uh, more robust and easier to understand. Uh, it's a whole, as much work put in the documentation, if not more, into is it into the actual code itself. All right, so uh, we're basically out of time, but before we go, I want to ask: Are there any things that you wish we had had time to cover? Whether it's technical about Laravel or things about you that you wish people knew or just that are interesting that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Uh, well, I I uh, I take hours. I I won't like feel tired for hours speaking about free diving. So yeah. maybe maybe next time we speak on a, on a podcast or we meet in person, we speak about free diving a little bit more. You know, I do, <laughs> you know, it's funny because every single podcast that I've had, I, I tried to stop saying it. So that's why I haven't said it a million times. But I think in my head, I could talk about this one subject for hours. Every I, f- I think that several times during each of these interviews. And that was one of them. So I do want to ask you one question about that. You you put a lot of energy, you put a lot of time into free diving. Now, now granted, there's some easy, obvious wins. You know, you're, you're in the sea. It's beautiful. Um, you're seeing, you know, ocean life and all this kind of stuff. But I want to hear kind of from your brain, like... What is the the main aspect of free diving that makes it so compelling to you? Uh, the freedom, like what I feel that uh, at the top when you are like not in the ocean, there are a lot of rules. Like you have to take care of how you look in front of people, mm-hmm. how you speak, how you move, and sometimes how you think. But down under, when you are like into the sea, the like you go plank, your mind just hmm. stop thinking and you enjoy the freedom that you can. You don't care how you look. You don't care how you move. Even if you are swimming wrong, nobody will be there to judge or to, to tell you that you are, you are wrong. And you can, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Like there is something I, I really do. Like if I am upset or I am mad or I am, I don't feel like quite happy. I just, when I dive, I just go down there, like maybe like 10 meters down, and I scream. And I, huh. I let it all out until like there is no, no air in, in my lungs anymore. And that's the time I come up. But that feeling of being able to do whatever you want, it's, it's, it's freedom. And that's, that's the thing, the most incredible thing I love, I love about freediving. That's amazing. I, I'm really glad we at least went five minutes in because, I, I, like I said, I, I agree with you. I'd love to go for hours into that. But I don't know if I would have even begin, begun to understand that that is a part of it because you, you mentioned that. And I've never done free diving, but I've, you know, I've swum in the ocean and I've, you know, I, I remember one time I went lobster hunting and it was, you know, just me just digging around and diving around. And, and you're right. I, I had no thoughts whatsoever about other people looking at me or my gait or my dress or my anything. It was uh, my pure focus was on what was around me. And and you're really right to point out that there's not a lot of 
context where that's the case. I think it's probably true in, in at least a little bit any time we're out in nature. It's one of the reasons why people love, you know, mountains and oceans and stuff. But that's really fascinating. Um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I love it so much. And I, I keep uh, speaking about it for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time we will do that. So, okay, <laughs> so if people are going to follow you, you are on Medium, you're on GitHub, you are on your own website, on Twitter and GitHub, and they're all basically, you said, them say it is how you say it. So T-H-E-M-S-A-I-D. And pretty much in all those contexts, you're there. Um, are there any other ways people should follow you or any other projects or anything that you want to shout out? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter and I like I like to speak with people. I like to get to know to be people. So just drop me a line and I'd love to speak with you on any topic. So that's that's the message I want to deliver. I love it. That's great. Well, um, I could talk for hours, but uh, it's we're, we're definitely hitting time now. So, Mohammed, thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing all this stuff with us. Thank you for the hard work you put in for the Laravel community. And not just as work, but as like your love for helping and teaching people. Thank you for contributing to that and for being a part of making the Laravel community a better part, our better place. And thank you, Matt, for having me. And thank you for the this uh, uh, the, the version three of the podcast. It's speak or like I, I've heard the, the past three episodes and they were really amazing. Uh, the, the questions you ask and how people answer it it makes you get to know how people themselves not not people as yeah. programmers the persons so thank you for this well i'm i'm overjoyed to hear that and i look forward to hearing when everybody gets to learn about you as well so uh, mohammed thank you it was great talking to you and i'll talk to you later see you later Matt.